Well, I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of Haggai this morning. And we are going to continue our study of this wonderful little prophecy from the Old Testament, the book of Haggai. You'll find our text on page 791 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you don't, uh, well, I guess Tom already mentioned that. You could take that Pew Bible as your own if it's not, if you do not have a copy of God's Word. Haggai uh, chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 10 this morning. So it's been a good day, church. Praise the Lord. I'm so excited for what God is doing in our midst as He calls people to be His own, as He sends us to the nations, as He gathers us to worship, to praise Him, that we might hear from Him. Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people, and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th month of the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word now, that we could come and sit under your scripture, that we would submit to its authority in our lives that you would reveal yourself to us, that we might know you more and more faithfully follow Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. 
On the morning that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, on the morning after, excuse me, 2,000 soldiers galloped out of Washington, D.C. in pursuit of John Wilkes Booth, the assassin. On April 26th, a detachment of 25 soldiers had tracked him down to a tobacco barn near Port Royal, Virginia, about 60 miles outside the capital. The Secretary of War had given strict orders that Booth was to be brought back alive. However, Booth was uncooperative. He was well-armed and fortified, ready for a fight. Finally, after some time, the order was given for him to be burned out of the barn. And so the barn was lit, and soon the whole structure was set ablaze. As Booth was growing desperate, the soldier at the rear of the barn saw him raise his rifle as if he was taking aim to shoot. And this soldier, against his orders, raised his revolver and fired in response. The bullet struck Booth in the back of the head, almost the exact location where he had previously shot the president. He dropped as the soldiers rushed in and pulled him out. They set his body on a nearby porch, assuming he was dead. But then they splashed his face with water and he began to move and mutter. Delirious with pain, the attending soldier leaned down and heard his whisper, quote, Tell my mother I thought I did what was best. He then, a short time later, asked for his paralyzed hands to be lifted. And they held up his hands and he stared at his hands and uttered his last words, useless, useless. Two hours later, as the sun breached the horizon, Booth had died. I wonder how many people will share Booth's sentiment about their life. Of course, not that we're murderers or assassins. But I wonder how many will, will come to the brink of eternity and evaluate their life and think, you know, I, I did what I thought was best. But in the end, find out it was useless. It was all useless. Haggai is sent by God to address the people who thought they were doing what was best. He's sent to talk to them, these people who were even busying themselves with the religious activity of building the temple of God. And yet, as you will note, the prophet will come to them and announce that the work in which you have committed yourself to, even this religious work, is useless. In fact, it's worse than useless. It's defiled because of the sin in your heart. Haggai comes and warns them about this work. I think he has a warning for you and I too, that we should not simply evaluate our lives by the work in which we perform, but evaluate the heart which motivates that work. And so we, we come to the end of this little study of the book of Haggai. We spent, now this will be our third week on this series called Renewing the Remnant. I, I'm very much delighted in this book because I think it's incredibly applicable for you and I, even though it was written 2,500 years ago, for it dealt with a people returning from exile, presumably out of their devotion to God. They were the remnant which God had called out of this dark world. And they showed up there in Jerusalem, the city once in ruins. And they begin to rebuild, if you remember a couple weeks ago. 
They begin to rebuild their, their beautiful homes. And soon these, these nice paneled homes begin to dot the countryside and around the city. And the development abounded for 15 years. And right in the middle of this bustling city, the temple laid in ruins, untouched for over a decade. And God sends Haggai to them to discuss their priorities. And amazingly, as we consider, they actually hear the word of the prophet and begin to rebuild. And yet their earnestness, their zeal for rebuilding God's house did not last very long because it was just 24 days later when they evaluated what it is that they were constructing and realized the temple in which they are building seems very small and meager compared to the glory of Solomon's temple, which was destroyed. In fact, there were even those who were over the age of 65 who remember the glory and majesty of what Solomon had constructed. And, and they thought, well, what we're building is, is like a potting shed out back. It's, it's insignificant. It's paltry. And God sends Haggai to them a second time to discuss their perspectives. He comes and tells them that though they're, what they're building looks that pales in comparison to the glory days long gone, they should understand two things. One, that God is with them in this work. And therefore, it is not insignificant. And that too, he'll take what they're doing and make it into something that they could not even imagine or dream. That they are actually building far more than they realize. So get back to work. And they once again obey. They return to work. And now they're busy working with the temple. Their hands are busy in this labor They begin to feel perhaps that they are doing this holy work and therefore they must be holy. That because of the, uh, they busy themselves with the religious activity, God must be pleased with them. This is sometimes what we think. If we do these religious acts, therefore God must be very happy with us. And even at times we might conclude, though we might not verbalize it, that He's obligated to bless us. And so God sends the prophet to them a third time, which we shall consider today. And He wants to talk about the purity of their hearts, not the activity of their hands. And after he finishes that message, Haggai goes home. But evidently he did not finish everything God wanted him to say because he comes back that afternoon and gives his fourth and last sermon a message of hope, focusing on the promises of God. And I want today to focus from this Scripture on the promises of God for you and I, the promises of what God will do when He sends His Son back into this earth. But before we do so, consider, first of all, Haggai's exhortation to give God your heart. He begins by calling us not to give God the work of our hands, but the affections of our heart. Note verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. So Haggai gathers the priests together on, according to our calendar on December 18th, year 520 B.C. This was two months after his last message to them. And he gathers the priests to himself and he asks them two questions. Both questions have obvious answers. The first question is recorded in verse 12. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with it his fold, 
bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? Now you see, in this day, they would make their sacrifices. They would take the animal to the courtyard and there they would slaughter the animal with a priest attending. The priest would then take the meat that was dedicated to God, the holy meat, and take the meat from the courtyard to the altar where the the sacrifice was to be burned. He would place it in the fold of his robe there to, to keep it from touching anything that might defile it. And so Haggai asked the priest this hypothetical question. Let's just say they sacrifice the lamb and he takes the meat on the way to the altar and he happens to touch something with this holy meat. He, he touches some bread or some oil or, or anything else. And, and Haggai says, does what the holy meat touch become holy? In other words, is holiness transferable? Is it contagious? Well, the priest answered. There at the end of verse 12, the priest answered and said, no, it doesn't work that way. If a holy thing touches something that's not uh, holy, it doesn't transfer that status of holiness, right? And we get, this works in life, right? Your kid gets sick. You don't ask your healthy kid, come here and breathe on your sick brother and make him well, right? That would be awesome, right? It doesn't work that way, right? Holiness, cleanliness... Health is not contagious. So he asked a second question, a similar question, but coming at it from the different angle. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with dead bodies touches any of these, does it become unclean? In other words, if you touch a dead body or, or something defiled, you, according to the law of God, would become defiled. You become unclean. And you would have to perform a series of rituals to regain that cleanliness. Now, Haggai says, what if someone who who is unclean because of contact with something dead, perhaps, he comes and touches something is, that is holy, does the holy thing become unclean? In other words, is defilement contagious? Is uncleanliness transferable? The priest answered. You see this in the end of verse 13? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Right? The end, yes, it is transferable. That's, again, how it works in life. You have something dirty and you have something clean and they come in contact with each other. Which wins? Right? The dirty. Right? The dirty thing wins. Moms, you know this? Right? What wins? Pants or mustard? Right? What, pants or grass? Right? It's the dirty thing. Like, this is why we, when we kids are sick, we try to keep them away from the healthy kids. Because if the sick kid breathes on the healthy kid, the healthy kid will get sick. See, sickness, not health, is contagious. Defilement, not holiness, is contagious. Okay, now this is all very interesting, isn't it? This is all what you came here hoping to consider this morning, right? And what's the point? Why is he gathering the priest to ask these questions? Well, the point is recorded in verse 14. Look what he says. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. You see, what he's saying to them is that because they are unclean, everything they touch becomes unclean. It becomes defiled. Now, what are they touching? Well, the temple. They're building the temple. And they may think to themselves, well, you know, the temple's holy and, and we're here building the temple. We're touching the temple. And therefore, the, you know, doing this holy work must therefore rub off on us. Now we have become holy 
And Haggai comes to him and says, no, 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 the temple's not making you holy. It's quite the opposite. You're actually making the temple unclean because you are unclean. Now catch this, even though they're obeying what God had commanded them to do, that is to reconstruct the temple, it is, it is an unclean work because of the sin in their lives. Now Haggai doesn't state the sin, but if you read the the, the book of Ezra, which is written at the same period that gives us the historical narrative, Ezra is not shy about stating their sin. And he goes on and on. They're marrying outside the faith. They are committing idolatry. And, and on and on Ezra goes to explain the sin of this remnant, this people. Right? And, and God's showing up and he says, just because you grab a stone or you lay some mortar doesn't make you holy. doesn't mean I'm pleased with you. Now, friends, I would suggest to you that we commit this same mistake all the time that they were committing at this day. That you and I think if we do religious work, if we do good things, then then God should be pleased with us. Then I'm clean in God's sight, right? And, And for them, it was building the temple. For us, it may be attending this church service. Maybe the fact that you're here this morning. Maybe because you gave something in the offering plate. Or maybe you're helping a neighbor. And, and these are all commendable things. These are things you should, of course, do. But please understand, they do not transmit holiness to you. Holy activity does not make you holy. Or put it, put it maybe in a more common way. Good works does not make you good. Of course, that is everything that our society says. That good works does make you good. In fact, this is how every world religion works other than Christianity. It says, if you do these good things, then God will love you and God will accept you and God may even bless you. And, God, and so in every religion defines the good things differently. Whereas the Jewish faith, it's keeping the Ten Commandments or it's, it's uh, Hinduism and, and following the rules of karma or it's Islam and keeping the five pillars of Islam. Here are the religious acts that we must do. And if we do them, that makes us good and that God is therefore pleased with us. And we begin to believe that God owes us something, that God is obligated therefore to bless us is very easy for you and I to fall into this trap. And you know how you, how you know if you've fallen into it? Well, what happens when you aren't blessed? What happens when life is difficult and hard and you face suffering and trial? Do you, do you grow angry? Are you easily angered? Are you easily angered? Right? Because if you are, what you're saying is, I deserve better than this. Because of who I am and what I've done, I am owed something more than this. And the Bible says, no, you are not owed anything from God. God says, God says, no, your ho- ho- these works do not make you holy. Sometimes we think, I've given my life to God. I've been attending church service for decades, right? And we get upset. This is what I get. Why is my life so difficult? Why is life going this way? You owe me something better than this, God. You see, there's two ways to rebel against God. Jesus taught this very clearly. You can rebel against God through disobedience, right? You can live a, a immoral life. You can say, I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm going to pay no mind to God and His law. But you could also rebel against God through obedience. Do you realize that? You you can say, if I never miss worship service, if I follow the rules, then I'm a good guy, and and therefore God uh, is pleased with me, that God owes me, that God will bless me. Jesus would teach this all the time. Uh, Perhaps no better in the parable of the prodigal sons. Remember the the younger son ran off, lived with prostitutes, and 
attended parties, greatly immoral man, and the other stayed close by and never disobeyed, right? One was greatly immoral, one was greatly moral, but at the end, right, the end of the story, who gets grace? Who gets the party? It's the greatly immoral one. While the moral individual, moral brother, is unreconciled from the father and his blessing. See, that's who Haggai's talking to. He's talking to the older brothers. I would imagine if you are in this story, that's who I'm talking to as well. That we are the older brothers. We are not the people generally who are living lives of uh, blatant immorality and disobedience, but rather seeking to obey God, seeking to please God. Please understand that your obedience to God does not make you holy. You know what makes you holy? Christ does. Jesus makes you holy. There is one place where you can find holiness, and it's one place only, and it is in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's the only place to be holy. Right? You understand that, that Christ's holiness is actually contagious. He can actually take you who are dirty and unclean and, and make you holy. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Please understand that Christianity is different from every world's religion. We, though, want to obey God. We do not believe that obeying God earns us any status with God. We believe the only reason that we have God's pleasure upon us is because Christ has come into this world and he has died for us. He has paid our debt. And three days later, he rose from the dead and says, if you place your faith in me, if you submit your life to me, I will make you holy. Christ makes us holy. And this is the word that we must implant deep into our heart. In fact, Haggai not only explains that holy activity doesn't make you holy. He goes on and says, a sinful heart will defile your religious activity. A sinful heart will defile your good works. Now, I want to be careful here because no one's perfect. And I just said, didn't I, that Christ makes us holy and therefore we're accepted by God simply through Jesus. And yet, brothers and sisters, it's easy for us. It's easy for me just to go through the motions, mechanical Sunday morning worship, right? Offer our songs of praise, contributions, listen to the teaching, and yet give none of our heart to God. Just going through the motions. Be warned, Christian, today. God does not want your religious activity. He wants your heart. He wants you to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? And just because you're here, in fact, even if you're here and, and you commit sin, you can defile the work in which you're trying to accomplish here today, this, this religious act of, of service to the Lord. And so the solution, of course, is not to stay away. The solution is to repent. The solution is to say, God, please forgive me for yelling at my kids or the lustful act that I did. It's not to stay away. It's not to put the Bible away. It's to come to God and say, give me grace. Please forgive my sin. And this is what God wants. He wants your heart. This is what Haggai has come to tell the people. And when you give God your heart, do you know what he is inclined to do to you? Well, according to the prophet, he's inclined to bless you. Not because you deserve it but because He is gracious. Consider secondly with me this morning that we are called by this prophet to enjoy God's blessings. To enjoy God's blessings. Look at verse 15. Now then, he says, consider from this day onward. That, that phrase, consider from this day onward, he'll say twice. It's important for us to note that. Consider from this day on, onward what? Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. 
I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. You see, Haggai says, hey guys, can we remember for a moment what it was like before we started to build this temple? Just remember what life was like six months ago when all we were doing was paneling our own homes. And remember how we, we, we were exhausted and we never had enough and there was more month than money and there, there, was, there, uh, there was all this frustration in our life and it never fulfilled us and we never arrived and we never said, finally, I'm here. There's always more and more and more to do. Remember what life was like when we were pouring all of our energy into our kingdom and not God's kingdom. It was terrible. In other words, he says, remember, sin is a bad deal. It will cost you every time. It costs you then. If you continue in it, it will cost you now. Consider what life was like before you started this work. But look at this pivot here in verse 18. He repeats himself. He says, consider from this day onward, right? Now consider something else, he says. From the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. Right? Think, he says. Think that that you you have, who are now giving yourself to this temple work. Is your harvest come in? No. It's only been three months. They haven't harvested anything. The seed's not in the barn. It's in the earth. They, They haven't brought it in. Of course, they've been having bad harvests, as we just saw. Right? There must be anxiety. Will the crop come? What kind of crop will it be? Will we even have seed to put in the barn? God answers that question at the end of verse 19. But from this day on, I will bless you. Right? The prophet comes and says, things are changing. Things are improving. Trust me, God says, though the seed is not in the barn, the harvest is coming. I'm not against you, God says. I love to bless you. I want to help you. I am here to pour out blessings upon you. And my Christian brothers and sisters, that is not only true for the people of Haggai 2,500 years ago, it is true for you sitting here today. God loves to bless God loves to pour out His blessings upon you. I mean, what father likes to discipline? What father gets all worked up? All right, I get to discipline my children today. It is a terrible work. It's a needed work, no doubt, but it is a terrible work. In fact, the prophet Isaiah tells us that judgment is God's strange work. Right? It's not His usual work. It's not His work that I think He delights in. In fact, He delights to bless. And I'll tell you, grace... The Bible teaches provision, blessings come into our life, not just in spiritual ways, but they come into our life in very practical and tangible and, yes, even financial ways, just like a harvest. The Bible teaches this both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We have to look no further than Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. It says, seek first the kingdom of God, and then what? All these things will be added unto you. What, What things? Food, clothing, housing. Now, where the prosperity gospel goes 100% wrong and messes up everything is they absolutize this, uh, this promise. 
they say, this is all that will happen to you. And the reality is is that you and I will face lean years, that you and I will face times of suffering and difficulty and challenging challenges. But please understand this, what God is saying to this prophet. I want to bless you, but I will bless you. That's what God says. He longs to bless you. Therefore, consider your ways, Christian. Consider your ways. God will bless you if you turn from your sin and give him your heart. He's, he's waiting for you. He's wait, waiting for you. And some of you have been dabbling in the same sin over and over for weeks and months and years. And God is saying, I have, I have so much more for you. Why do you want to live this way? You're continually frustrated and sad and going from a, this cycle over and over again. And this is not what I have chosen for you. This is not the life I have for you. My blessings are, are ready to pour out upon you. Just give me your heart. Stop sinning. Turn back to me. God says, I will bless you. This is the promise to the people of Haggai. I think it is the promise to Hamilton Baptist Church through this prophet. God says that we are to enjoy his blessings. Well, Haggai finishes that sermon and, and, uh, on purity and God's blessings and, and goes home. But evidently a few hours later, he comes back to give one more sermon. And this sermon is a, this declaration to remember God's plans. To remember God's, the plans that God has. What's interesting about this last message that Haggai gives, it's not to the nation. It's not to the remnant. It, it, like the previous three have been. But it's just to one person. This man named Zerubbabel. Look in verse 20. The Lord, the, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. And so we, we, we're introduced once again to this man. We've actually seen his name a number of times in this book. I, I trust you've noted that. Here we find out that he's the governor of Judah, which means he's not the king. It means he's ruling under the pleasure of a, a greater power, namely the power of Persia at this time. And so they sent Zerubbabel back and he could reign in some sense, but certainly not as a king, even though he is a direct descendant of David, King David himself. In fact, it was when Zerubbabel was but an infant that he, his entire family, including his grandfather, King Jehoiachin, were taken into captivity into Babylon. It is evidently there where Zerubbabel's name was changed. His name, Zerubbabel, means offspring of Babylon. And yet now he returns some 50, 60 years later, and he governs there over Judah, but not as a sovereign king, but by permission of a foreign power. And you wonder, does he, does he think, well, what's ever happened to God's promise to King David? You know, God told David that, that your son will sit upon this throne and he will reign in an eternal kingdom. He will reign forevermore. Well, Haggai comes to answer that question. And he comes to Zerubbabel and says, let me tell you what God is going to do. I think he wants to tell us this morning. Let me tell you what God plans to do, Christians. And especially he's going to use you, Zerubbabel, to do it. Haggai mentions two parts of God's plan. The first being that God will defeat all evil. Look in verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Right? God says, I'm about to shake this world. 
It's very similar. Do you remember last week? Look over in verse 6 of chapter 2. God also talked about a shaking there. Look, it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. But if you remember last week, that shaking intended to fill the temple with glory. Right? And we talked about that last week. This shaking, uh, uh, Haggai says, is to overthrow those who stand in opposition to God the King. Right? He's, the thrones will be overthrown, he says. The strength of kingdoms will be destroyed. Their armies will fall. Nations will be purged. Evil will end. And his kingdom will be established forever. Now, that, I, I, that must have been incredibly hard to believe in this day. Because they're a subjugated people. And Persia's might is unparalleled. I mean, no one is even remote to the power of Persia in this day. It must have been hard to believe that one day God will destroy all these kingdoms that continue to resist His mercy and grace. And I wonder if it's also hard for us to believe as well. I mean, we may say we believe that God will one day establish His reign in this way. But does it actually impact our life? I think that's why he's coming to Zerubbabel to to impact his life. Do you truly believe this? In fact, I I think when we talk about this this climatic judgment of God in our day, most people just scoff at us. This, of course, used to be uh, well-believed in this land, but today it is just considered religious fanaticism, simple-mindedness to think that God will actually come and and defeat those who stand in opposition to him, those who refuse his mercy. We're mocked because we believe this, of course. But it's not, it didn't just start in our day. I, I like the story that the 19th century theologian uh, Soren Kierkegaard tells of a, a, a story of a, a fire in the backstage of a theater on opening day of a new comedy. And the clown sees the fire and he, he realizes that everyone is in danger and he rushes out onto the stage to warn the audience. But rather than fleeing, they all laugh. Right? They, they all applaud. And so he repeats himself, you know, all the more urgently, flailing his arms upward and down, his eyes in a panic, running to and fro. And the crowd, well, they just go wild, right? And they cheer and they whistle. And, and then there's this uproarious laughter. Well, Kierkegaard concludes saying, I think the world will come to an end in the same way. The human race will stand in thunderous ovation, calling for an encore Convinced it's just another happy joke. We're considered clowns today. You, of course, know this. Clowns running around calling fire. And yet, please be convinced, Christian. And and if you are here today, you're not a Christian. Let's just say unequivocally to you today. We understand we are mocked for this belief that God is coming in judgment. And yet the scripture teaches it over and over and over again. And so we are going with the Bible on this one. And it will be a day not for laughter for those who refuse to submit to Christ. And, and Haggai comes to Zerubbabel to tell him this word. But it raises the question, why tell it to Zerubbabel? I mean, wh- why come specifically to him and say, okay, man, I want you to know one day God will defeat all evil. I assume that's comforting to him. But you can almost imagine him saying, okay, great. Well, what does this have to do with me? Why are you telling me this? Well, it's there that Haggai begins to specifically address the role that Zerubbabel will play in these events. As we see that God will rule the world and will do so through the son of David. Look in verse 23. On that day, 
declares the Lord of hosts. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. He's saying, I'm going to use you on that day, Zerubbabel. I'm going to use you like a signet ring. Now, a signet ring was a, a king's ring that he would use to, to make his imprint into to wax or to clay. And, and whatever he would seal with his ring would, would therefore carry the weight of the king. It would authenticate. This is from the king. So it was precious. The king would keep it on his finger, or we know some kings would keep it upon a chain around their neck. On occasion, the signet ring of a king would be given to a trusted advisor. And this advisor would therefore have the power of the king himself. It it almost like the modern day equivalent would be like a a king giving you his credit card and say, just do whatever you want with it. Right? There's great power and authority with that ring. Remember Joseph, he would have the Pharaoh's signet ring. Well, God says to Zerubbabel, I've chosen you to be my signet ring. Now that's interesting because about 70 years earlier, to Zerubbabel's grandfather, King Jehoiachin, God sent another prophet. He sent the prophet Jeremiah to Zerubbabel's grandfather. And in Jeremiah 22, the prophet says to this wicked king, even if you, Jehoiachin, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my hand, I would still pull you off. Right? And, and he did. He sent Jehoiachin and all of Judah into exile. But now God, 70 years later, comes to Zerubbabel and says, I'm putting you back on. Right? Uh, you're my signet ring. You will possess my authority. You will possess my power. Now, this is very confusing in some sense because Zerubbabel never served as a king. In fact, there was never a king after his grandfather over the land of Judah. So when did he receive God's signet ring? When did he have this authority? In fact, most people believe he didn't live much longer after this event. You know, we know that the temple was was completed three years after this in the year 517 B.C. And, and And then after the temple was completed... They had this huge dedication. And Ezra tells us about this massive dedication. And Ezra is a scribe, so he lists everybody's name, especially of importance, who came to the dedication of the completed temple. You know whose name was not listed in the attendees of the dedication? It was Zerubbabel. And so most people think that he probably lived to see the completion of the temple, but died before the dedication. So the question then raises, so in what way was he the Lord's signet ring? Well, I think you probably know by now, when the prophets of old come and they begin to prophesy, there's always this full and deep uh, fulfillment of the prophecy found in the Messiah to come. Just like every other prophecy, I think this prophecy refers us to Christ himself. In fact, I think there's a hint of it. Look again in verse 23. He says, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel. Right? Now, in verse 21, he talked to him. He said, speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. But in verse 21, he says, okay, you're the governor of Judah. Now in verse 23, he drops the governor of Judah and adds, reminds him who his dad is. Zerubbabel, remember your dad? Shealtiel. So what is that significant? Well, he's reminding him that he's in the line of David. In fact, Zerubbabel is actually mentioned in the New Testament. Do you know that? You could just turn over, I don't know, a couple pages to Matthew chapter 1. Just eight or nine pages. And there we find a list of names in Matthew's Gospel. And we read in verse 12, 
And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abud. And on and on we go until we get to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. Right? And so God, God comes to Zerubbabel and He says, you understand, I am going to bring the Messiah through you. Can you imagine what that would be like to be like Jesus' great, great, great granddaddy? Right? Through you, sir, oh, you don't understand, the Savior of the world, the one who I said will shake all this world, the one who will put away all evil, the one who will rule in my power and authority, I'm going to bring it through you. See, the promises are not made to Zerubbabel, the individual, but to what he signified, the line of David, that the, the chosen protector of God's people, the heir of David's throne, the rebuilder of God's house. He points us to Christ. This promise is fulfilled in Christ. In fact, I would suggest to you that this whole book points us to Christ. This whole prophecy is about Jesus. It's not about the promises to necessarily these people or to this man, but it points us to who Christ is. After all, who was the one who did not live for his own gain? Who's the one who didn't busy himself paneling his houses, but rather lived for the priorities of God? It was Christ. Who was the one, by the way, who always maintained perspective, even when things were hard and difficult, and his ministry looked faltering and suffering was on the horizon? It was Jesus. Who was the one, by the way, who was totally pure in word and deed and thought as he went about the work before him? It was Jesus. Who was the one who never failed to trust in God's promises, even if they were far off in the midst of hardship and difficulty? It was none other than Jesus Christ. In fact, I would suggest to you, as I have over the last three weeks, that Jesus is the temple to which the temple pointed to, the place where we meet with God. And just like that temple of old, Jesus himself was destroyed because of the sins of his people. And just like that temple of old, he took upon him the wrath of God. And just like that temple of old, he too was rebuilt three days later. And he was rebuilt with far more glory and majesty than he had prior to his destruction. I would suggest to you that Jesus is, as Haggai tells us, the desired of all nations. And that people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation will come to Christ. Indeed, they are coming even today that they They might bow their knee to Jesus as their king and as the desire of their heart. I would suggest to you that Jesus is the Holy One who actually comes into contact with you and I and is able to make us holy. He is the one who will bring all of God's blessings and abundance upon God's people. He is the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the one who has been given the signet ring of His Father. He is the one who will come and shake the world in in judgment, and only those who have cried to Christ, give me mercy, will stand on this day. It points to Christ. It's about Jesus. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophet of Haggai and every other prophecy in Scripture. It points to our Lord. In fact, the Bible tells us one day, as we've seen over the past two weeks, that He will bring the city of God with Him, where we will spend eternity serving God forevermore. And we've looked in the book of Revelation where it says there's no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb. But if you read on in Revelation 21, it says the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. They will bring into, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of nations. Note this, nothing unclean will ever enter it, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Are you written in the Lamb's book of life? My friend, there is no more important question. That you, it will determine your eternity. It is not the life you live that will determine your eternity. That is a lie. It is not whether you're good or bad. Listen, we're all bad. There is one good. His name is Jesus. He offers you grace right now. He will write your name right now in heaven into his book of life if you will bow your knee to him in faith and trust in him. And that ends the book of Haggai. I don't know if you share my assessment, but... It has been such a delightful little book for me. I just love the progress, calling people out of complacency. And they begin to work and then falter. And then encouraging them a second time and, and, and they repent and resume their work, but only to do so with their hands and not their hearts. And, and then they find themselves, because their hearts are not in it, they're cut off from the presence of their king. They don't, they don't enjoy the blessings that accompany his rule. And for a third time he comes calling forth repentance that they might experience God's presence and His blessings. But even the blessings that they experience, even the blessings that Haggai promises there in verse 19 and in the rest of the book, even the blessings that you and I experience today, even the blessings that we'll experience tomorrow and next week and on, please understand that the blessings that we enjoy today will be eclipsed by the blessings to come. So yes, let's continue to do the work of God. Let's, let's, let's build His temple. That is the church. Let's enjoy our harvest when He brings them in. But understand this, please, Christian, understand this. You and I are just beginning. I don't care how old you are. Your life has just begun. And one day, even though we are dwarfed by the increasingly secular powers around us, please understand, just as the remnant was dwarfed by the power of Persia, one day, Zerubbabel's son, who bears the signet ring of God Almighty, is coming again for his people. Are you ready for that day? May he come even now. Father in heaven, we long for King Jesus. We long for the son of Zerubbabel, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who has come to make a way to a holy God by forgiveness through his, his substitutionary death on the cross. We're thankful, Father, for him. We long for him even to come now. And yet, Father, our hearts are often wayward. Please, will you not in your kindness as we've considered today to help us to surrender our hearts to you. You call us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You desire obedience, not sacrifice. You desire our heart's devotion that we might know your presence as we look forward to the return of Christ. Will you encourage us with these truths? Will you exhort us to surrender our lives even more to you? And 
We pray for our friend here this morning who does not know Christ, who has yet to yield their life to the Son of God. Will you please even now as we consider these hard truths that if they refuse to receive your Son, they reject Him. They will not receive your grace. They will not receive eternity in your kingdom. It is only through faith in Christ that we might become yours. Will you give that faith to them even now? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.